Good afternoon, everybody, if you're watching this live. If you're not and you're watching this uh, in the distant or near future, well, welcome. As you can tell, I have a wonderful guest with me, and we'll just jump into this. Uh, Elizabeth Urbanowitz um, is an educator. Let's put it simply as that, and then we'll get into the details there. Uh, but usually what I do, Elizabeth, is I just go through kind of the educational history of individuals that I interview, and then we talk about... Uh, you know, how that journey was just for some mm -hmm. tips for people who may be starting in the midst of that. Some people change, you know, course as they're going through their education. So Absolutely. you have a bachelor's of science degree from Gordon College in elementary education and Spanish. Correct. Uh, so, so it was that a uh, kind of a dual thing. Is that a minor? Like, how did that um, well, when the college that I went to, Gordon College, they required that if you were majoring in elementary education, you also had another major just because education is so specific. You know, if you didn't want to be a teacher, <laughs> they wanted you to have something else to fall back on. Um, but I just thought that Spanish was very practical. <laughs> so oh, that's yeah. why I did that. <laughs> and then you have another master's from Northern Illinois University um, in the literacy education. Correct. Okay. Tell us what that is. So basically it's looking at how do you get children or teens or even young adults to read? What kind of skills do they need? How do you just equip them to be sound readers? Because once I started teaching, one thing that I found is that if my students were struggling readers, everything in school became so difficult because around the third grade age, you stop learning how to read and you start reading in order to learn. And so if you're a struggling reader, learning is going to be so difficult. So I just found myself in my first year of teaching, I was kind of floundering with my students that weren't good readers. And I was like, I need to actually learn how to teach reading. So I went back to get the master's in literacy education, just so that I would be better equipped to help my students read better. Wow. And then you went back after that, I'm assuming, and got a master's in Christian apologetics from Biola University. Yes. And that's the, what, that was just a, that was her fun? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it, um, it was very painful, but I guess there was a lot of fun involved in it as well. So. Um, that, that was actually another result of my teaching. So several years into my teaching experience, actually kind of while I was getting the master's in literacy education, I noticed that my students who were, even who were strong learners, they weren't very good at thinking, that they were good at memorizing information and regurgitating it. You know, they knew all the Bible stories, they knew all the right answers, and they could spit it back out to me. But then when it came to living life, they didn't understand that Christianity was an explanation of all reality, you know, that either it's true or it's false. And if it's false, it's not worth anything, you know, and if it's true, it's worth everything. And so I started just looking for what are some resources, you know, that I can use to equip the kids in my care to really think critically, see how Christianity just lines up with reality in a way that no other worldview does. And I couldn't find anything. Um, you know, there was a there was a few things here or there, but nothing that was really going to systematically transform the way that my students thought. Um, and nothing that actually took them through both the biblical worldview and then other worldviews in our culture. So I just started creating resources and taught an after school class, you know, never with the intention of doing anything else with this. But once people saw the transformation in that group of students I was working with, you know, they were evaluating everything that came their way and they really took hold of their education. Um, people from all across the country were like, how can we get our hands on this? And I was like, I can't. Like, <laughs> I'm a third grade teacher. Like, I'm not a publishing house, you know. So anyway, this kept happening for several years. And eventually I was like, 
okay, it looks like there's a need here. (laughs) Um, And that's when I went back to Biola because I thought, you know, if I'm going to publish this, like, I need to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. You know, like I can't go out there and be like, well, I read a book once. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, my time at Biola was incredible. I learned so much. um, And just, I highly recommend that program to anyone interested in apologetics. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the guys there are amazing to study with and, and they're world mm-hmm. renowned and they're just amazing scholars. So yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, I have quite a bit of friends who went through it. Uh, I went through MA in philosophy program, so that was a bit different, oh, but we, we, we would have some crossovers uh, here right. and there with the apologetics guys that uh, and girls that would sit in on uh, some of the philosophy stuff. Now, this it seems to me that your you know organization that you've started, right? It's called Foundation mm-hmm. Worldview. Uh, and we'll have the w- the website uh, in the description box because we want to encourage people. Um, look, I served as a pastor uh, for 10 years, mm-hmm. and r- we probably changed, I want to say, three to four children's curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, curricula as I, we would like look at it, and then one of the things that would bother me is that I would go through all of these things was that there was a big aspect of it missing and it was the apologetics aspect of it that was missing it was frustrating because we kept looking around my wife and I kept doing research just like man is there no one that is integrating this into the you know the biblical stories and frankly there really wasn't so when I saw that there was someone who was doing stuff I was like oh thank god this is this is so amazing and my wife has I later on I'll she has a question for you that uh, I've. Uh, she was like, "Ask her this." So we'll we'll talk about that. Um, Hopefully, I so, can answer. <laughs> yeah, so I think so. Um, so this kind of naturally came out of you being a teacher. I mean, you have mm-hmm. a you have a love and a desire. It's the way you're wired. It seems to me that uh, you want to work with young people. How was this always the case? Like, were you one of those people that was I don't know seven years old and you're like, I want to be a teacher? You know, uh, <laughs> that's a great <laughs> how, question. How did this come about in your life? Yes. Well, the interesting thing is I hated school as a child. (laughs) Like I, part of it's because I was just such a homebody and I loved my family and my parents chose to send us to public school and I just wanted to be at home. Um, So I think I would have made a very happy homeschooler, but God used that in my life. Uh, Just, I, I had a couple of really bad experiences with the teachers who were just, um, I had some good experiences too, but I had a couple of bad experiences with with teachers who were just really done with teaching and didn't really care anymore. So they, they had just kind of checked out. And so I just remember sitting in my desk in first grade, just being like, I just want to get out of this place. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe if I was the teacher, I could actually make kids like this place. (laughs) Um, So I remember thinking that in first grade and then it wasn't, it wasn't always my dream, but just as it turned out when, when I got older in middle school and high school, it turned out that teaching was the way the Lord has gifted me. You know, I got opportunities to teach in the children's programs at the church where I grew up and it just became evident to the people around me that this was the gift the Lord had given me. So I decided to pursue that. And, And I'm so thankful that I did. And I'm so thankful that God's given me this opportunity to create resources now for others because I love working with children. I know there's so many others that do as well. Um, so just to really equip our kids to be thinking about truth, I think is is so important and I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. Um, as uh, it, Again, it seems like you were teaching, you were involved already doing these things and then you saw what was missing and you're like, well, hey, you know, I can, I can somehow 
you know, impact these areas, which led you to this. So tell us what the program uh, is. Like, what is it that you've created out of this necessity, right? Like the church <laughs> needs this, Christians need this. Um, and so what are you, what is your gift to the church? Because it really is. <laughs> yes. Well, we all have gifts, you know, that we're giving, that we're giving the church and, um, as part of his body, you know, it says in Ephesians four, you know, that when everything is working together properly in the body, you know, it builds itself up in love. And so I think we can see this in everyone's life. Um, but what God has called me to is to create these resources. So first I'll explain to you kind of like what kind of resources that we have and then how we equip others. So the first thing that, that I, came up with was just what I used in my own classroom with my students, where I wanted them to understand what a worldview was, what the biblical worldview teaches, what other worldviews teach, so that they had the opportunity to compare these worldviews and that they would be able to be the ones realizing, oh my goodness, Christianity consistently lines up with what we find in reality. So the first year of materials that my organization published is is a comparative worldview curriculum for elementary students. So what we do is we look at big worldview questions like what is truth? What is real? How did life begin? What does it mean to be human? How can I tell right from wrong? And first we just have the kids like explore the concept. We do a lot of hands-on things and we have them just explore what do we find in the world around us? Then we have them dive into scripture and say, okay, you know, the biblical narrative, what does it teach about this concept. And then we look at four competing worldviews in our society and look at, okay, what do these other worldviews teach? And then the kids compare and contrast the beliefs and then discuss, okay, what actually lines up with what we discovered at the beginning of this unit when we just looked around us so that they're the ones discovering that Christianity lines up with reality. And um, so that was our first product. And then since then, we've come out with other things. We also have what we call our careful thinking curriculum for upper elementary students. And in that one, um, we just wanted to equip kids to really carefully evaluate every idea that came across their path. So in that one, we build a biblical case for why it's necessary for Christians to spend time learning to think well. Then we look at, we don't call them these big words because it would bore kids, but <laughs> we have them look at the basic laws of logic. Logic. We call them careful thinking rules. We have them play lots of games and explore. We expose them to basic logical fallacies. And then we give them tools for evaluating um, sources, the credibility of sources. And then they put it all together, you know, in different situations. And so we're just, we're so excited about that one and just how kids are equipped to really think critically. And then we recently came out with our first early childhood series for four to seven-year-olds. Just, I had no intention of doing this, but so many people reached out and were like, we love your series for elementary students. Like, but what do we do with our little ones? And I was like, that's a great question. <laughs> Um, so we have a series for truth um, on truth for four to seven year olds. And so what's really unique about this is we're trying to blend um, both sound educational philosophy. So basically looking at how did God design a child's mind to learn? You know, where are they at different developmental stages and what do we need to do in order to really create these neurological pathways that they're going to be thinking well and carefully evaluating ideas. So we're taking that sound educational philosophy and then coupling that with sound theology and philosophy and apologetics so that kids are not just, you know, they're not just exposed to good content, but that their thinking is actually transformed. And that's that's the goal of all of our materials. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I, 
I get excited. Look, being the father of a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, three-year-olds, you know, okay. coming up on there. So uh, this stuff excites me because uh, I'm regularly thinking about what are the things I can mm -hmm. implement into my, my children's lives and um, and just make it better because I want them to grow up to, you know, love that, which is true, beautiful, and good. Yeah. And um, so we have these regular conversations. Uh, I was actually earlier today uh, with a bunch of... Uh, I was anywhere from first to eighth grade and wow. my it was it was very interesting because last week my son uh, i my son's been reading uh through the chronicles of narnia and he mm -hmm. finished the second book and i was like okay why don't you start the third one he said i don't want to and i said why he said oh it's boring and i said okay can can you tell me what what that word means you know what is mm -hmm. and so he kind of struggled with it and uh i said well you don't really know what the word means but you, th you think it's bad you know <laughs> <laughs> um, and then today, it was very interesting because today we had, uh, I asked the kids, hey, what do you guys think about school and this and that? And, and one of the kids goes, ah, but it's so boring. And so we had a redo of that whole conversation <laughs> about what boring means and <laughs> and uh, whether even if something is boring, does it mean it's bad for you? And which is great because I, I think about 80% of the kids said, no, it doesn't mean that it's bad for you. I said, okay, that's great. <laughs> we're, we're, on a good, yeah. we're on a good path here because... Uh, Something could be boring and very good for you. Yeah. Um, well, good for you for capitalizing on that opportunity because oh, I think that's, that's something you know that a lot of adults we would have just been like, oh, well, sorry, you got to do it even if it's boring. But the fact that you had you know both your child and this class of students actually think like, okay, what does boring mean? And then once we've defined it, is it always necessarily bad? Like, so really good for you. That's yeah, bravo. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think I always tell people philosophy is uh, always made really complicated, but most of it is just defining things properly. Mm. That, that, that if you get that down it, it will be well for your soul i would say <laughs> yes. um so the, the way the curriculum is set up can you tell us how the curriculum is set up uh, because i want to uh, there's a follow-up as you think about that um mm. who can use it right is it for churches is it for homeschooling families is it for schools they can adopt it like w how can it be applied and uh because sometimes people just think oh that's just for like homeschoolers uh right. you know so is it videos? Is it just books? So give some details there, please. Yeah, good questions. So yes to your questions about who it's for, that it's for homeschooling families, it's for non-homeschooling families, it's for churches, it's for Christian schools, it's for grandparents working with their grandchildren. Um, our, what we wanted to do is we wanted to create resources that could be used in any setting, you know, anyone who's working with kids. So we tried to make it manageable. So our our curriculums, not not our mini series, our mini series just has three lessons <laughs> so far, but our curriculums have 30 lessons and each lesson is between 40 and 60 minutes long. So we say, you know, carve out an hour once a week. So if you're at church, that's generally what you have. You know, if you're at a Christian school, you don't need to add a whole new class. To your school day, you know, it's just once a week. If you're a homeschooling family, you know, you just add one, you know, class day. If you're a non-homeschooling family, just do it for an hour over the weekend, you know, one weekend day. And so the way that it's set up is I just thought as a teacher, anytime I was asked to teach something that I didn't have an area of expertise in, it was very intimidating. <laughs> um, like my school used a spelling curriculum that just taught spelling in a way that I was not familiar with. And the first two years of my teaching, I didn't I didn't receive that much training on it until my third year of teaching. And so my first two years, I would save spelling till the end of the day and really hope that we ran out of time for it. <laughs> 
<laughs> just because I was always so scared thinking like, I know this is important, but what if the kids ask me a question I don't know? Or what if I teach it the wrong way and I actually mess up their spelling ability? You know, what if they're, <laughs> they're worse for the wear? So knowing that a lot of adults you know, don't have a background in theology or philosophy or apologetics. I knew that that teaching this material could be really intimidating. So I thought, okay, what, you know, what made it easier for me to teach? And there was two answers. There was training, and then there was somebody else actually coming alongside me. You know, and obviously I can't come alongside every single parent or teacher or pastor that implements these materials. So what we did is we actually created videos for every lesson. There's two videos. The first video is just for whoever is doing the teaching, and it's anywhere from three to five minutes long. And it's just like, hey, here's the concept we're covering. Here's why it's important. If you've never heard about it before, here's an easy breakdown of it. Like here are typical questions that kids ask. And also like, hey, when we're doing this activity, it's not just this cutesy little activity. Like here's what's going on in your child's brain. This is why we're doing this. And then we have a longer video that the adults can actually show to the children that actually does all of the teaching for you. Just to take away that fear factor for anyone who's thinking, I know this is important, but I don't know how to do this. And then we have, for people that don't want to use the videos, we have actually, you know, step-by-step -step lesson plans that just walk them through like, hey, if you want to do this on your own, here's what you do. And we also have um, activity sheets that follow, that the students can follow along with as, you know, as they're going through the lesson, we'll give them, you know, directions for a certain activity. And then they have sheets that go along with that. So we've really just tried to make it you know, cover all the bases A to Z so that people can implement it with ease and without any intimidation. Wow, that's amazing. So I guess that covers my wife's question. My wife was saying, uh, can you come up with like a book curriculum um, uh, instead of like the videos for, for it to be implemented? But it seems to me that you already have that. Someone has the freedom to just not use the videos there. Yes. Um, yep. So all of the materials, when someone purchases a license, they have access to all of the materials online. And so if they don't want to use the videos, they don't have to. They can just print out, you know, like all of the teacher guides and all of the student activity sheets and just use those without the videos. Awesome. So you spoke about kind of um, a philosophy of education. Mm -hmm. And most people that I interact with uh, don't really know there are different philosophies of education. Right. Like I, I think most of us went to uh, public school um, and uh, we were just taught a certain way. You just kind of grow up and then you tell your kids, hey, that's the way we did it, you know, kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> can you kind of tell us and break it down as to how this is different, how it supplements it, mm -hmm. how it kind of works with what's the underlying philosophy of education that you have that might be different from what people are used to? Yes. So, you know, in the United States, there's a variety of philosophies of education, you know, there's there's just kind of like the traditional American public school where, you know, you learn a certain amount of content and you're tested on that and it kind of builds up each year. And then uh, what's known as classical education is really on the rise in the U.S., especially among the homeschool community, um, also in charter schools and other different uh, private schools as well. And so the classical model really you know, dates back to the days of ancient Greece, and it divides education into three different steps. There's the grammar phase, the logic phase, and then the rhetoric phase. And in the grammar phase, which is like lower elementary school, there's just a ton of memorization because the kids, their minds are ready to absorb a lot. So they memorize a ton. In the logic phase, it's where children are supposed to be taught how to think really well, you know, actually like learn the laws of logic and how to apply them. And then the rhetoric phase is where they're learning a lot more content and also learning how to build a defense 
you know, for, for their position on something. So that's, that's gaining a lot of traction. And so it's interesting because I taught in a school and I was trained in the university to teach in, you know, like the traditional American model of education, you know, that's aligned with certain standards. And then as I did more research on education myself, I found myself more aligned with the classical philosophy of education. So as so as I created curriculum, what I tried to do is I tried to to blend the best of both worlds <laughs> and tried to create curriculum that was that was aligned with those phases the grammar the logic and the rhetoric because i really i really agree that those are are the clear distinct phases that a child goes through in their ability to think critically um, but then also tried to make certain portions of the curriculum be able to easily fit within the traditional american model you know so we have certain you know objectives and essential questions and different forms of assessments you know beneficial parts of that that model of education. So, so we don't strictly follow just one, but tried to create materials that would be able to align with either model of education. Okay, so it would be fair to say that uh, the younger the kids are, the more kind of memorization exercises are included in your curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Children learn all sorts, of, and people learn in all sorts of different ways, but specifically children. and. Um, I am just fascinated when I look at really good teachers of that elementary age because they're able to use props and their hands and like just mm -hmm. gestures. Um, it, it again fascinates me. Uh, good teachers know how to do that stuff well. Uh, do you implement that? Can you give us some examples maybe of how some of that looks just so if parents, I mean, I hope parents are watching this and they're like, yeah, I'm interested in this. I want, I want to get this. I want to be involved in it. Um, and so what, what would they kind of look forward to? Yeah, so I'll, I'll um, tell you things that are included in our curriculum. And I also just love to give tips because even if, you know, even if people aren't interested in our materials, I just love to equip them to get kids thinking well. Um, so when we're talking about like philosophical concepts, like we're talking about the concept of truth or we're talking about morality, you know, these are, um, you know, they're, they're metaphysical concepts, you know, they're not actually physical things that our kids can, can grasp, you know, physically, but what we need to do in order for them to understand these phil philosophical concepts, if we can attach the concept to something concrete, something physical, it's really easy for them then to make the step from the concrete to the abstract. Um, I say, just think of mathematics, you know, no matter what school or model of education that you follow, generally mathematics is introduced in a somewhat similar way. We don't start off by asking a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, you know, just by shouting out, you know, like, what is five plus two? Because that means nothing to them. So what we do is we take out blocks and, you know, we take out five blocks and we have them count the blocks, you know, and they practice counting the five blocks. And then we take out two blocks and we have them practice counting that. And then we push them together and we have them practice counting up to seven. And then we can actually attach the symbol to it. You know, we can draw the five, the numeric symbol and say, oh, these are five blocks. This is the number five. And then we do the same thing with two. And then eventually we introduce a math equation written out, you know, and then by the time they're seven or eight year olds, years old, we just call out what's life is two and they can say seven and they understand it because we've taken you know this abstract concept of numbers and attached it to something physical so anytime we can do that with a concept um, it just makes it so much easier so an easy example for this is the concept of truth you know that the classical definition is the correspondence theory of truth is that truth is that which corresponds to reality you know say that to an eight-year-old and like 
they might smile or they might roll their eyes, but like, it's not going to mean anything. <laughs> um, so if we can attach that to something physical, it's so much easier for them to understand. So what I do usually with kids that, that are in my care is I'll send them out on a treasure hunt and I'll mm-hmm. have, you know, like chocolate or stickers or something hidden somewhere in the room or in the house. And then I'll say, okay, I am going to give you directions for finding this treasure. Now, some of your directions may be true directions and some of your directions may not be true directions. So give them, you know, give them the directions, send them out. And then only one child or one group of children will actually end up finding the treasure. And we'll come back and we'll debrief and talk about, okay, why, why didn't your group or why didn't you find the treasure? And they'll say, because my directions, they were wrong. You know, they didn't show me where the treasure was. And I say, oh, okay. So your directions weren't true. They didn't show you what was real. They didn't show you where the treasure really was. And then we'll talk about the group that found him and say, okay, why did you guys, or why did you find this treasure? Well, your instructions showed you what was real. They showed you where the treasure really was. They were true. And then we'll talk about, okay, so what does it mean for something to be true? Well, truth is what is real. (laughs) You know, it's what's really there. And so that, that way, you know, if I just gave them the definition, just said truth is what is real. It's kind of like, okay, so what, where, when they have that physical, activity of going and looking for a treasure and either yay, finding it or oh, being so disappointed and not finding it, suddenly they're able to understand, oh yeah, it's not just that I tell the truth rather than tell lies. It's like truth is anything that actually shows me what is really real. So anytime we can take an abstract concept and attach it to something physical, it's so much easier for our children to grasp. Wow. That's that, that's just an amazing example of, of how to teach well. <laughs> So parents, you guys can practice this, uh, this at home. Um, As you guys go through the curriculum, um, does it kind of cover the biblical aspect of it? Or it just kind of includes parts of it? What does it look like as it interacts with scripture? And then we'll come back to a question you mentioned, uh, or a comment you mentioned about uh, reading, and then we'll talk about that a little bit. Great. Yes. So the example I just gave you with truth about that activity with truth, that would be what would be included at the beginning of a unit where we would actually explore the question, like, what is truth? Like when we're talking about it, what is truth? And then once we have that definition and the kids have an understanding of what truth is, that's when we then look at scripture and we'd look at, you know, where where does scripture talk about truth? Because a lot of times we just look for a word in the Bible and we think like, oh yeah, Jesus is the truth. And it's like, well, yes, you know, John 14, 6, he, he is the true representation of God because he is God. You know, he, he truly shows us who God is and he is also the only true way to God. But it's so much more when you look at scripture. So we'll have kids look at, you know, like, at at passages of scripture throughout, you know, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament so that they see that God is the source of truth, (laughs) that truth stems from him, that it's not just like, yeah, Jesus is the truth. It's like, well, what does that mean? You know, like five plus two is seven, five plus two isn't Jesus, (laughs) you know, but God is the creator and the sustainer of that mathematical reality. So yes, so first we look at the philosophical concept and then we look at what scripture has to say. And I know this is a, this is a little bit of a paradigm shift for some people because we're so used to just saying like scripture is true here's what scripture says and and that is true that that is very true that scripture is true and we need to teach our kids what it says but in this cultural context our kids are going to receive so many competing 
ideologies. And so when they're young, what we want to do is we want to build a foundation so that they understand it's not just, oh, I blindly trust the Bible because daddy said so, or because mommy said so. It's like, yes, we're going to stake our lives on what scripture says because scripture consistently points to reality. You know, like scripture is grounded. Like we ground our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we're wasting our time. But that's something we can actually investigate, you know, and when we see that that's true, then we place our trust in the rest of scripture and we see that scripture consistently lines up with reality. So it's a little bit of a paradigm shift for us when we're used to just saying like, here's scripture, it's true, believe it. But we want to give our kids that opportunity to see, oh, like this isn't a blind faith. This really is an evidence-based trust in the God of the universe. Amen. So I, uh, I learned English as a second language as an 11-year-old. And reading has always been difficult for me mm. um, just because it was a second language. Like by the time I kind of, you know, I came to the United States, I was like fifth grade, sixth grade. By the time I got right. established culturally, I'm in like the eighth grade. High schools when it's like, okay, but I'm already behind, you know, so all my peers yeah. um, knew very basic rules to grammar and all that stuff, which wasn't the case for me. Um, and one of the things, and then I became a Christian after high school. So that like, uh, <laughs> one of the things that made me a better reader, actually, uh, generally speaking, was reading scripture properly mm -hmm. within its context. Now, you, you mentioned about, you know, kind of literacy, and we think we know how to read, but we really don't. Mm. Um, and my personal opinion is that hermeneutics is a part of apologetics. There's no way you can do mm -hmm. apologetics, in my opinion, unless you know how to do hermeneutics. Most apologetics questions I get asked have to do with the Bible. And most of the answers are, that's not in context. Let's figure out what the context is. And then that'll explain your question, right? Like, uh, oh, the Bible says do this. And I'm like, yeah, but is it like a universal command or is it just specifically contextual? And then once you like answer this, the person's like, oh, okay, that answers my question. <laughs> So how do you, do you and, and how do you implement this uh, kind of knowing how to read and understand the context, the language, all of that that right. comes into kind of being literate, right? Not just recognizing words, right. not just recognizing letters, but actually reading and then understanding that which you're reading. Right. Yeah, you're hitting on something really important there that that when we're when we're teaching kids to read, you know, even outside of the context of scripture, there's two different portions to it. There's fluency and then there's comprehension that that actually being able to decode and read the words, you know, that's that's one portion of it. But then there's some children, you know, who can read perfectly. You know, they can they can tell you what all the words mean. But as they're reading, they're not actually comprehending. They're not understanding it where you might have another child that doesn't read fluently very well. They can't decode the words like they're not sure what the next word is, but then they insert a word that would make sense there. It's not the right one, but it would make sense. So that shows you, oh, they're actually comprehending what they're reading, even though they're struggling with the fluency. So you're hitting on those two important aspects that we can, you know, read scripture in its entirety and not properly understand it, <laughs> that, that, that that is possible, where we might struggle with actually reading words, but dive deep into the context and understand, you know, comprehend what's being said. So with children um, in our curriculum, our curriculum is not specifically focused on here's how 
you know, here's how you properly study God's word. I'm hoping one day we will have a whole series on that <laughs> because, you know, that deserves just a whole series on its own. Um, but one thing that, that we're passionate about is having kids look up larger portions of scripture because, you know, there, there are places, there are a few places here and there where we might have the kids look up just one verse. But in general, we like to have them look up larger passages of scripture. So we're not just training them to read one verse, pull it out of context, you know, and try to apply it to their lives. So that's something that's really important. I actually, I just led a webinar uh, last week on equipping our kids to think biblically. Um, and if anybody's interested in seeing that, if you go to the Foundation Worldview website, it's just a whole 45 minute teaching on how can we get our kids thinking biblically. And we talk about some of the important concepts that we need to go over with our kids. And one thing is we actually need to be in scripture with them, <laughs> that that's really, that's really, really important because sometimes we think like, oh, you know, like we'll tell them the Bible story or we'll read the Bible storybook with them where it's like, you know, not every portion of scripture is appropriate for a six or seven year old. You know, you're not going to read straight through Leviticus with them. You're not going to read verse by verse through the Song of Solomon. You know, those things just are not appropriate at that age. But the Gospel of John, like absolutely, <laughs> you know, we can read that the, the Gospel of John in context with our kids and actually discuss it with them. And so I think that's something that's so important so that our kids get used to reading larger portions of scripture. And instead of just asking like, okay, you know, like, what is, what does this mean to me? Which that's not proper hermeneutics asking, okay, what does this passage of scripture reveal about God? <laughs> and then actually introducing them to good teaching. Like you mentioned, you know, we're not does a certain portion apply to everyone? You know, when we look at the Mosaic law, you know, that was given, you know, for the purpose of national Israel. So we don't just pull a verse out of context and say, oh yeah, I have to do this. It's like, no, that was for God's people. Well, what, what applies to me? So I would just recommend, you know, actually reading through scripture with our kids, discussing it with them and introducing them, you know, some, if we haven't been exposed to good teaching, if we don't know proper hermeneutics, you know, to make sure that we start doing that, we get training, you know, to watch different YouTube channels that do that well, listen to podcasts. You know, there's so many great resources out there that can equip us. And then we in turn can turn around and equip our children. That's right. So if uh, parents are watching this, uh, I'm hoping parents are watching this. Uh, one of the books that really helped me was uh, is a book called uh, How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. Yes, um, it's fun. it's like you read it and you're like, wait, there are different ways of reading. You know, you shouldn't read everything the same way, which we're not really yeah. taught. And specifically uh, for the Bible, uh, how to read the Bible for all it's worth um, mm -hmm. is a great resource. Mm -hmm. It's it's not at a scholarly level, so people don't have to be intimidated by kind of technical language or whatnot. Uh, but it will give you those two books will give you the tools, I think, to be able to lead and, and guide your kids. Uh, Manny here has a question, and the question says, how early is it good for a kid to start? So how early, you know, again, like, let's just use my case. You know, I have a three-year-old, five-year-old, and a seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, so, like, when do you start? How do you introduce these subjects uh, to your children? Yes. Well, I think, you know, at somewhere between the ages of three and four, I think it's great to start getting our kids thinking, you know, developmentally kids are, kids are going to be different when they turn three, some three-year-olds, you know, 
can talk and you can understand everything they say. You know, other three-year-olds are like, oh, yeah, that's great. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> only their parents. Only their parents yes, are the ones yes. who, who can you kind of yes. look at them and you say, can you please translate that, right? <laughs> yes, my, usually parents or older siblings. <laughs> so my five-year-old translates uh, for, <laughs> for my three-year-old because he'll say stuff oh. and I'm like, and my daughter will be like, oh, here's what he's trying to say. I was like, oh, you <laughs> That's know. sweet. So, yes, usually the older siblings are best at that. But somewhere between the ages of three and four is a great place to, place to start with so many things. Um, the concept of truth, just having our kids understanding the difference between an objective truth and like a subjective truth, more like a, an emotion or a preference, that's super easy to do when they're four years old. You know, like we can just give them, you know, silly sentences that are either true or false or sentences that are just preference. You know, something like, I love ice cream. You know, that's a feeling and we can just have them hug themselves. Or if we say, you know, um, today is Monday, you know, we can have them either put up their thumbs or, you know, pull out their arms and yell truth <laughs> just to get them thinking like, what are the differences between just something that I'm feeling, which our feelings are important. You know, we need to, we need to recognize that, but something that I'm feeling versus something that is not going to change based on my feelings. Like I have, I have a water bottle here, you know, somebody might say, well, you know, for you, it might be true that that water bottle is an airplane. Well, no, you know, like no matter how much I want this water bottle to be an airplane, it's not going to get me you know, 3000 miles from my current destination. So just to get them thinking about the difference between something that's like a, a subjective feeling and an objective truth. Um, also to start reading scripture with them. It's not too early when they're three or four years old to start taking them through an appropriate narrative book of the Bible. Um, I, I used to babysit for my pastor's kids every once in a while when I lived just outside of Chicago and they had they have four small children. And when I would babysit for them during the evenings, I would, you know, I would do their typical evening routine, their typical bedtime routine. And part of that was reading through a chapter of scripture. I think when I first started, they were going through the gospel of John, then they went through first Samuel. And I was so impressed with the way that they were able to actually comprehend what was being read. Like, were they sitting there on the couch, just looking at me smiling? No, they were squirming around, you know, and they were moving and they were touching each other. You know, that's developmentally appropriate. But then they ask good questions. Like one time we were reading in the gospel of John when Jesus was praying and the oldest who was four years old said, wait, Jesus is God, but he was praying to God. So is he talking to himself? And it was such a great talking point. You know, they had also incorporated catechism with in with their kids. So I was able to ask, I said, oh, that's such a great question. Now tell me, how many persons are there in God? And their two-year-old, you know, had memorized and said, there are three persons in the one living God. And I was like, okay, let's talk about who are these persons. So yes, yeah, so Jesus is God and God the Father is God. They're both God, the same God, but they're different persons. So it's just incredible, you know, what even young kids can do. So I would encourage whoever is listening, you know, it's never too early to start. And especially that three, four-year-old range, it's amazing if we can start reading scripture with them and just getting them to think about truth. Yeah. Um, so that's amazing because uh, we have uh, uh, William Lane Craig's children's books, uh, you know, yeah. uh, and my son was reading it out loud as they were all laying down to, to sleep. And I, I wish I recorded this because it would have been brilliant. But uh, my daughter asks some question about like how God is, you know, like 
they were, I think they were talking, they were reading about the Trinity and stuff. And then she said something about like, well, can we see God? And so they're having this like pretty, pretty intense conversation about, um, you know, persons, but not physical persons. Now, that, that's not the language they were using, obviously. Uh, but I, I was like, man, these, you know, here's a seven-year-old and a five-year-old that are trying very hard to understand these kind of conceptually very difficult stuff. And yeah. so, which leads me to that question, to this question of, it seems to me that a lot of us just assume children are really dumb, I, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like, or stupid, like, mm-hmm. um, they'll, you know, they'll start thinking about this stuff when they're 15 or 16 or something. But it's, it seems right. to me that that's too late, right? Like, you have to get these basic foundational blocks, these building blocks together, and they have the ability to kind of reach up to it. So don't treat them mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, just people without brains, I, I would say, right. Um, right? Like, and and you respect that, right? Like, you your whole system yes. is b- built in a way where you respect that about children. Yes, no, absolutely. Because what you're hitting on there is so important that, that, yes, we need to be developmentally appropriate. You know, we're not going to introduce them to those narratives in the Bible, you know, that are just not developmentally appropriate to them. You know, we're not going to expect them you know, to understand quantum physics, you know, like something that's not developmentally appropriate. But when we understand what they, you know, where they are developmentally, and then we raise that bar within the framework, they almost always exceed the bar. <laughs> you know, so if we keep it really low, like, yeah, maybe they'll they'll reach it, they'll go a little bit above. But if we just extend that, we are in generally shocked, <laughs> you know, at what they, at what they can do. And, you know, as you're talking about your five and your seven-year-old, they're at a place in their development where learning is really exciting <laughs> because, you know, the world is so exciting and it's new and they're just exploring it and they're learning all different sorts of things. So when we can capitalize on that natural interest, like they can learn so much where if we wait until they're 15 or 16, like, yeah, some 15 or 16 year olds are kind of motivated, you know, to learn. But a lot of times, you know, it's just a difficult time where they're just figuring out, you know, like what's happening to them physically and emotionally and socially. And they're not super interested in general at learning these things. So if we can, you know, really reach them when they're young and create this appetite and develop these healthy patterns of thinking, then when they are teenagers, you know, then we can really augment what what we're doing and give them the opportunity, you know, to really think critically through everything that they're being confronted with. So I just applaud you for having those books around your house. You know, it's so great that your children are having these discussions, you know, even on their own. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, they regularly uh, surprise me. Now, something I haven't mentioned, I have a minor in education. So my, mm-hmm. my bachelor's degrees in, in biblical studies and I have a minor in education because I wanted to teach high school mm-hmm. level history. And then when I did my student teaching, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this because it's <laughs> uh, practically when I was going through my um, my student teaching, I realized that not much education was happening. A g- good mm-hmm. amount of the time was being spent on like behavior modification, essentially, right. and just telling kids to be quiet here. And so I didn't like mm-hmm. the model. And again, right. like you were saying, you know, I kind of got my minor in this system of like standards and stuff. And I've moved away from that to this right. kind of classical integrated model, interdisciplinary model. And then getting a degree in philosophy also helped with that because, look, I was sitting, I've said this previously, but I was sitting, I think it was the semester before my last semester, graduate level, I'm taking symbolic logic. 
and I'm doing these proofs, these like 28 step proofs. And then I get this realization sort of like, I understand math. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> I understand the stuff I was missing in high school geometry, mm-hmm. which I struggled with a great deal. Right. And I was like, man, I wish they taught me basic logic because I would have actually enjoyed mathematics instead of just telling me memorize this and then not never giving me a reason as to why. Um, and so that's, it's kind of changed my perspective and I implement that into, um, right. in, into my kids' lives because I think it's good for them. Now, with that said, because there are different models, uh, Tom uh, asks, uh, should Christian parents be sending their kids to public schools? And he specifically says, I'm in California. And then Manny says, uh, I'm kind of scared too, to be honest. And I'm also from California. So uh, why don't you comment on this? Yes. So that question is one I get frequently. And it's one that, you know, I'll tell you what I think is most beneficial, but it's one that I don't think that there's a blanket answer to. I think what the blanket, the one blanket answer to is whatever educational decisions a parent makes it should be well thought through and well prayed through (laughs) that we shouldn't have any default education setting because you know everyone lives in a different context you know the different church that they're in the different community that they're in the neighborhood they're in the schools that their kids are in their their child's personality their child's temperament their child's needs all of those things vary so i don't think that there can be one thing where i can say this is the only model of education. (laughs) Um, So I think that if parents are choosing to use the public school system, I think it's possible to be a believer and to do that well. But I think it requires a lot of intentionality that it requires, you know, parents to be aware of what actually is the curriculum, you know, not just sending the kids to school and having them come home and say, how was your day? You know, but actually not that you want to be annoying. You always want to be respectful, you know, when you're going to the administration, but actually asking, okay, what is the curriculum? I would like to see copies of this. I would like to know what's being taught. And then, you know, looking at your child's homework, what kind of questions are they being asked um, so that you can know what is going on and also having just very intentional conversations and teaching times with them. Like when you know that there, there are going to be things that come up, even if your child has a Christian teacher, a lot of times I hear parent, you know, Christian parents say like, I know public school might not be the best, but there's Christian teachers at our school. And that's wonderful. You know, that's wonderful. But the teacher does not choose the curriculum. And behind every curriculum, there are assumptions. You know, even if it's just mathematics, the assumption, you know, in most public schools is that mathematics is a human invention. You know, that there's, you know, we've just created these rules. The same with science, you know, even language and and history. We need to make sure we understand, okay, what are the assumptions embedded in this curriculum? And what am I going to do to make sure that I'm intentional about having my child see that these assumptions don't line up with reality? So if people are using public school as kind of like, well, it's easy. The school bus comes. I send them off. I get to go to work. You know, they come back. It's woof. Like, no, that. That is not the way to do public school. You know, it's not even the way to do Christian school. We as parents have a God-given responsibility over the education of our children. And so if we're choosing to, um, you know, to outsource that, to use other resources, we need to be very, very intentional about knowing exactly what our kids are exposed to and what are we going to do to make sure that we're establishing a biblical worldview with them. Um, I am a big proponent of homeschooling just because I think, um, you know, no one loves your child like you do. No one has your child's best interest at heart like you do. I also think, (laughs) even though I know, especially for parents with young children, 
it is so much work to take care of young children. I just watched two children um, from a family at my church yesterday, a three-year-old and a four-year-old, and I only watched them for three hours. And then when I brought them back, I had to take a nap because it was a lot of work, even though I had so much fun. So I know for especially parents of young kids, it seems like, oh my gosh, this is so much work. Like I can't even think of having my kids at home, you know, for more time, but really 18 years in the grand scheme of life in the grand scheme of eternity is a very short amount of time that we have been gifted with our children. And so I think that homeschooling provides a really great opportunity to maximize that time that God has given us. There's also many collaborative schools that have started running, you know, where it's almost like a home, like a, like a, a larger homeschool co-op, you know, where the kids will actually be in classes for two days out of the week. And then two or three days out of the week, they're at home doing school at home. So I think there's more options. Some parents, this might not be feasible. You know, if we're talking about a single mom, you know, homeschooling is probably not feasible. You know, or if we're talking about, you know, a, a you know, just a family in a difficult financial situation, or just, you know, there's so many different situations where, where homeschooling might not be possible. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that your child is getting subpar education. It just means we, whatever model we choose, we need to know what our kids are exposed to and we need to understand what do we need to do to make sure that they are thinking critically and biblically. So I hope that answers yeah. the question. No, no, that's, that's exactly what I would have said. Um, one of the things that I think is very important is even if the teacher is a Christian, doesn't mean they have a Christian worldview. Um, and I would say this about all fields, by the way, I would say like psychologists, right? Like it's like, oh, this person's a Christian mm -hmm. psychologist. And then when you look at the way they actually practice psychology, it's actually as worldly as, as they come. I yes. mean, I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm just saying the basic philosophical foundations to what a person is. Are people naturally good or bad? I mean, these are, again, worldview questions. Right. And you could be a Christian and not actually have a Christian worldview. Um, so I would, again challenge us to think and ask for it's like okay they are christians but would do they yeah. really have this now we we just got we've been homeschooling our kids and th this is the first time they're gonna be in kind of a structured setting you could say or structured in the traditional way we think about but it's it's still a co-op kind mm -hmm. of model so it's still a bunch of people homeschooling but have come together to do this and there's advantages of that because you can add so many cool stuff like, I'm excited that my kids are going to learn coding like, yeah. at a very young age. And I, I'm not just excited about that in the sense that, oh, they're going to grow up and become whatever computer engineers and stuff like that. I frankly, just whatever my kids want to do and whatever God's gifted them to do that. I'm more excited because they're going to learn logic because coding is mm -hmm. just if then. And I'm like, this is a way, right? It's an integrated model where this is a way they in a very fun environment without even realizing that they're practicing if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that. Right. And, you know, when, when they look at that on a, you know, later on in kind of in algebra, uh, they're going to be like, Oh, they, they, they're just, they're not even going to know how they know this stuff because it's, it's been practiced. Right. Uh, but again, yeah. uh, there's multiple ways of doing this. Right. You're bringing up a, two good points though there. And the first is just, you know, when, when we do think about, you know, just alternative education models, the time and the flexibility are two incredible advantages. That's one, that was one of the reasons that, that I 
became a proponent of homeschooling yes. while I was still a teacher is I just looked at my classroom of students and I thought, man, if I did not have 24 kids, like if these kids were at home doing this learning, what's taking seven and a half hours together, I'm pretty sure they could get done in two and a half to three hours, you know, like, and then so much time, you know, for so many other things, you know, like, like different fun elective classes that are going to help them in the long run. I think so even just, you know, reading scripture, time to do that together as a family, that's a real advantage. And then what you said before about, you know, someone in philosophy or psychology who, who's a Christian, but isn't doing that from a distinctly biblical worldview, that's actually part of my story too. In, in even my, my passion for equipping kids to have a biblical worldview, because I went to, you know, a Christian college and I got an education degree and I had wonderful Christian professors who deeply loved Jesus. But most of what I taught or what most of what I was taught was just the secular humanist model of education with some scripture verses stamped on top. Like I was never actually challenged to think like, what is the role of a parent in education? What is your role as a teacher biblically in education? You know, like, how do you view a human? You know, how do you view the children that come in your classroom? Like, what is the biblical understanding of what it means to be human? How is that going to affect the way you manage your classroom? How is that going to affect the way you discipline in your classroom? And five years into my teaching experience, I had someone, um, it was actually, I was at Focus on the Family and I had Dr. Del Tackett as a professor there. And he started talking to me about education one day after class. And I was just like, my mind was blown. And I was like, I don't understand what a biblical model of education is. You know, like here I've already taught five classes of students and I don't understand what it is. So I started diving deep, you know, just into the history of education in the United States, you know, and then looking at like biblically, what is education? And so just to encourage others, yes, we really need to be careful, not just to say like, oh, well, it's a Christian in the classroom, you know, even if it's a Christian school, <laughs> you know, does this person genuinely have a biblical worldview? Do we genuinely have biblical worldviews as we're instructing our children? <laughs> and that's the amazing thing about what you're doing, because you're not just trying to teach them the Bible. Bible, right? As good as that is. And you're not just trying to teach them hermeneutics as good as that is. You're really trying to use this curriculum to teach children to think Christianly, right? About all aspects of their lives as they, as they get older. Because the question is, for example, for my son plays soccer. It's like, I want him to live out his life well mm -hmm. on the soccer field, right? Like, to, let's right. just say to think Christianly. Um, and that involves the morality of like cheating and stuff like that, hard work mm -hmm. that that comes out of a worldview question. Like, why should someone try hard anyways? Right. Right. Uh, the Bible has something to say about that. Uh, so that again, that's that's why what you're doing is so important and good, because it's it's not just this kind of one way. Let's memorize a bunch of scriptures and then say, hey, mm -hmm. our kids are Christians and they, you know, they can recite 800 passages. But if you tell them, hey, what are What's your opinion on, uh, you know, sports? Uh, like, should Christians be involved in athletics and stuff like that? And right. they just kind of look at you like, no, I, I, I don't. <laughs> what do you mean should Christians be involved in that? <laughs> or politics or something like that, right? Uh, so I want to thank you for that because that is, uh, again, it's it's needed for the church. It's it's needed for parents. Mm -hmm. the, the more the merrier is, uh, is the way I look at this. So, <laughs> Yes, and that's exactly what you're talking about is exactly why we wanted to create materials that anyone could implement, you know, because we know some parents are going to choose public school and that might not be their first choice, but it, it might be, you know, what the only practical thing for them. And so we wanted to create something where we can say, okay, if you can carve out 60 minutes once a week for 30 weeks in a row, you're going to be equipping your 
your kids to be able to see through, <laughs> you know, these underlying worldview assumptions in the content that they're exposed to every day so that when they hear this in school or when they're reading it in a textbook or when their teacher says this, they're not just blindly accepting it. They're thinking, wait a minute, that's this worldview question. And what that person just said, that doesn't align with scripture and it doesn't align with reality, you know, so that we're not having to, you know, every day comb through everything our children have been exposed to, but we're actually equipping them to be proactive, you know, to be, to be critically thinking in every situation that they encounter. It's like giving them a giant filter, you know, to, to, mm -hmm. to just filter everything coming through. Uh, let's let's deal with this final kind of question comment uh, because I I like what Tom has said here, um, and and comment on this. He says I feel like this conversation is something most of us ignore until we have children. Um, then it's full on panic mode. <laughs> um, so how do we calm parents like Tom down and say it's it's okay and and it's also kind of normal. Uh, for you to think mm -hmm. about this stuff when you have kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so can you kind of your experience as you deal with parents and, and the kind of sort of <laughs> stuff that comes your way? Yes. Well, I would say that the first thing, you know, I don't want to encourage anyone to be panicked, but I think the encouraging thing about that is showing that the parent actually cares, you know, that they're not just, you know, going on cruise control saying, you know, well, this is what my parents did. It was good enough for me. So it'll be good enough for my kids. So I think recognizing that the feeling of panic is, is a good indicator that, that you're caring. So that should be an encouragement. And then also recognizing, remembering, you know, what we already know that God is sovereign, <laughs> you know, that he is not the God of confusion and panic. <laughs> you know, we, we have peace with him. We've been reconciled to him and, and Jesus is our peace. Meaning that if we fear God above all else, we have nothing else to fear because we've already, <laughs> you know, been reconciled to God. So just to recognize that it's a good indicator that we're caring, we shouldn't give in to the panic, you know, because when we're in panic mode, we don't make wise decisions and we can't think clearly. Um, so I would just encourage any, any parent that is feeling panicked about this to be very, very prayerful about this. You know, what can we do with our children, you know, to equip them to think well, and that's when I would also encourage them to to seek out resources. My curriculums are not the only beneficial resources out there. There's a there's a lot of resources, and and what God has given you know God has given me the gift of time that I don't currently have children of my own, so I have time you know to do all this reading and all this creating, so that others can just take what I've done and implement it. And there's other things out there, you know, like there's other books out there. Natasha Crane has written a number of helpful books. Um, Mama Bear Apologetics is a great book. They're also coming out with a guide for sexuality that's releasing in the beginning of October. So there's lots of helpful resources that parents can dive into and then say, okay, what what do we need to do with the children that God has placed in our care? I also really um, encourage, this might sound like a no brainer, but just to make sure that we are, you know, intimately involved in the life of the local church, that we need other believers in our life you know, who are speaking truth into our life, who can notice, you know, when we're kind of on cruise control, you know, and we're not being intentional with our kids or, or just other parents that are doing the discipleship process well so that we can learn from them. You know, we can walk alongside them. Um, so I just really encourage that, you know, recognize this is a good thing that you're carrying. God is not the God of confusion and chaos. You know, we have, we've been reconciled to him. So don't make any panic decision. Search out good resources that are already available so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, be prayerful about it and then make sure that you're really rooted deeply in a gospel-centered community that can walk alongside you as you're seeking to raise your children in the truth. 
Amen. Um, one of the things I would say, it's also never too late, nor is it never too early mm-hmm. to, to start focusing on these areas. Um, and mm-hmm. with that, I think for me, my experience has come through the local church and just Christian friends who had kids who were kind of ahead of me in their lives age wise mm-hmm. and just, you know, had a bunch of kids where we would talk and I would learn from them or they would recommend books. And I was unmarried. Um, and, but I was like, oh, well, one day I want to have a family and I got some time on my hands. So I want to read, uh, you know, what the different think, thinking patterns on these issues. And you just prepare ahead like anything else you would do uh, mm-hmm. and anticipate that because, right, like I got married and then we had my wife got pregnant like a month after we uh, we got married. And it's like, OK, there's there's a kid coming and we better get our stuff straight. You know, we have, we have a very small uh, window here. But it was it was good because I was around people who were challenging me. And before I got married, mm-hmm. uh, who were speaking mm-hmm. about these things. Right. I mean, the most terrifying audience I've had has probably been um, a bunch of uh, what I think they were like eight, nine year olds and, and under <laughs> like five of them, all siblings asking me about the Trinity. And I was like, oh, man, this is I'm terrified here because I can answer this to an adult uh, group because they understand the words I'm using. And, you know, it's like, how do I explain what essence is to this nine year old (laughs) or nature, you know? Um, And so it gets you thinking uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So prepare, read books. I mean, Mm -hmm. praise God. God has really, really gifted the church uh, with individuals Mm -hmm. who are thinking about this, who've written on this, who explain it. And historically, one of the things that we're very um, bad at, I would say, in the maybe modern American church is we were disconnected from Christian history. Throughout mm-hmm. history, there's been Christians who've thought about this and produced material on this. So it, it makes sense to go back and see what they have to say uh, and how they explain these things and then see how we can implement them. Even non-Christians, right? Like, again, I think about, I told my kids, the, the students I had today, I told them, guys, I want to run the class a bit differently than the way that you guys are used to uh, because there's, they're from different backgrounds, like homeschooling. I said, one of the things I'd like to do is sometimes have class outside, just like mm-hmm. under a tree sitting down and reading because mm-hmm. we're going to be dealing with like Greek mythology and stuff. And you should have seen the excitement on these kids. I mean, there was like <laughs> shouts of joy, right? Yes, you know. And part of it is because that's all they're used to is just sitting down in, in mm-hmm. a classroom facing forward. Uh, and mm-hmm. just the setting change, just sitting on grass outside mm-hmm. and just reading together. Um, and again, I've picked that up from other p- folks that I've seen that say, hey, this works. You know, this is really cool. It, and it's like, why Why not? Why shouldn't we be doing this? So uh, don't panic, Tom. Uh, it will be well. But uh, I really want to concur that point you made about the local church because uh, we ha- the local church gives us an audience to be discipled by people. And these are things we get discipled into. And then it also gives us an opportunity to disciple those uh, around us who are starting on uh, on this journey well right. look we're we're a little over an hour i want to really thank you first and foremost again i want to thank you for the work that you're doing because it, it takes a lot you clearly love children um <laughs> and uh you're really investing into uh, into our kids uh, and, and i want to thank you for that and i really look forward to uh, to other material you're going to come up with to, to bless the church. Uh, so no, well, thank you. And thank you for having me today. Oh, no problem. Well, for our audience, I want to thank you again for joining us here live. If you're watching the replay, thank you because you, you're a trooper. You've made it through an hour long video on YouTube. Uh, and if you're listening to this on audio again, thank you. Hopefully your drive has been <laughs> enjoyable as uh, you've uh, been listening uh, in the description box. 
we'll have all the links uh, to what Elizabeth is doing and just more info you can find on this specific subject. Uh, let's invest into our future. God bless you guys. And I will see you guys next time. Take care. Thank you.